0: You are a combination of many identities Religion, race, caste, class, gender, sexual orientation, mother tongue, community, country, just to name a few. These socio-political identities come into play at different times of your life. The reason you vote is linked to your country's universal franchise, but the person you vote for is determined by your community, class or even caste. These multiple identities each have unique histories. Every checkbox on a census data is the result of countless wars, several marches and hundreds of revolutions to justify its legacy. So have you ever stopped to wonder which of these histories belong to you? Let us go back to the ultimate history, the modern humans that emerged out of Africa can you claim ownership to a history so very little is known about that nearly all aspects of it are under debate? Sure, you are human, but do you feel a kinship to our shared origins? Can you instead claim ownership to a history not that of your ancestors, but have nonetheless let them flourish? Horses for one have played a critical role in warfare on the Indian subcontinent. They have facilitated trade and transport in its diverse geography. However, they are not native to the region as they arrived with invaders from central Asia. There's a fine line in the sand about groups that you belong to, yet their legacy seems so foreign, far removed from your reality. Can women around the world claim the suffragette legacy? Can all modern democracies tip their hat to ancient Athens? The question of history ownership is a personal one, the kind that only you have a say in answering for yourself. You can call whatever history you like your own because chances are high that that history has impacted you. Ultimately, however, it is irrelevant. Even if you get a certificate printed, then all human history ever recorded is yours. No one can fault you as long as you don't stop them from doing the same. Because the question is so ubiquitous and universal, the answer does not matter on an individual level. There is enough for everyone and then some. The only time the question of history ownership arises in earnest is when the said history is being destroyed. Part 1. History as a Collective Heritage Belonging to something and something belonging to you are two very powerful feelings. After your first job, no doubt you are asked where you want to spend your first paycheck. It is a very loaded question. This is the first time you will be consuming items that belong to you completely. These are the fruits of your labour. It is the first time the commodification of your effort is bearing tangible reward. It speaks to a more primitive human psyche where resources were scarce and hunger was abundant. To possess something meant that you triumphed over nature to achieve it. It belongs to you. You can claim histories that on the surface seem to have nothing to do with you. If they inspire you, if you feel a kinship to the plight of those living through it, If their circumstances are similar to your own, if they bring you comfort, these histories already have your heart. And by the virtue of your knowledge, by taking time to acknowledge their nuance, you already own an intellectual piece of those histories. But should you get to influence it? Ideas regarding history ownership can be viewed through a dichotomy. On one hand, we can view history as belonging to only the descendants of those who experienced it. That way, the further back in time you go, the larger the pool of people who are impacted by it. Prehistory is a good example. Most of our ancestors branched off not to see each other again till the age of discoveries. The civilizations they built created identities unique to their descendants. The biggest problem with this approach is the line between those experiencing its consequences and those impacted by it is incredibly slim. I cannot claim my ancestors were Paleo-Americans or even that they participated in the colonization of South America, but that does not stop me from enjoying french fries with tomato ketchup for breakfast. I have not experienced the globalization of Latin American vegetables like potato, Or, shockingly, Latin American berries like tomatoes, first-hand, yet it has impacted me and my diet. As more cultures interact with each other, the future will connect more ideas from the past. So why not share history with everybody? The other side of this dichotomy is the idea that history is a global inheritance to be shared by all of humanity. That is certainly the position taken by international arbiters of culture like UNESCO. Even the name of their system of classification, the UNESCO World Heritage List, implies the collectivist nature of the history they want to preserve. It transcends the community and the individual. It brings out our similarities as a species, sharing the same world and its resources. So even though in the past our history might diverge, lately it's been converging towards a stark homogeneity. As we move closer, you will bear the burdens of my history and I will yours. It's a tempting argument, no doubt, one shared by many. But it conveniently ignores those born through that history. History does not exist in a vacuum. That's its whole stitch. It reaches out into the present and has very real consequences for people who the history is about. These can be their places of worship, their hallowed grounds. There can even be sites of great injustices committed against them, compounded and felt even to this day. If we deny these people a greater ownership of the history that impacts them because apparently it belongs to everybody, we are complicit in their oppression. It works out well for those whose history gets told because they wrote it, but the rest who are not included in that narrative have to adopt it without question. The answer is somewhere between these two absolutes. For history can neither belong to only some, nor everyone and therefore no one. It is based on circumstances that require evaluation. Because owning history is very powerful, you can preserve it or destroy it. The vertical axis of this argument, who does history belong to, is time-based. Does it serve the needs of the present, informing, enriching, providing context to our world? If this is the extent of history that knowledge and structure have travelled millennia, Just to reach our time, it is up to us to change it, preserve it, or destroy it, however we see fit. We are the masters of what is past, or passing, or to come. Or are we instead just keepers of history for the future, to maintain the past in the best possible condition before handing it off? Would it be that history which has reached us is also meant to travel to the future as is? Most would disagree with this view, at least partially. People are terrible at long term thinking. The present weighs too heavy to not influence our perception of the past and the future. Part 2 Destruction Culturally, destruction as a trope is important, like very important. As a theme, it has been repeated in many religious mythologies figuratively, and more often, literally. Ever heard of the story where God flooded the world in order to get rid of human overpopulation, deceit, greed, and general bad behavior, save for one virtuous guy who survived on a boat? Was it Etrahasis from the Akkadian Epic, Utnapishtim from the Epic of Gilgamesh, or Noah from the Old Testament? All these stories and more tell the tale of great destruction and subsequent rebuilding of humanity. The destruction acts as a reset button to existing evil, when new beginnings and great things are to come. The most prominent of the gods within the Hindu pantheon, Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver and Shiva the destroyer, form the three murti. This principal trinity is incomplete without destruction. Within Hinduism, the mortal realm goes through four distinct eras called yukes, and when the last era is complete, the world ends and another is created in its place, which again goes through the four eras. Humanity is dead. Long live humanity. As a cyclical belief system, destruction is vital in the process of creation. There is no end, just new beginnings all the way down. Destruction does not always imply subsequent creation, just the end of the old, the present paving the way for the future. It's like going out with a bang. The spectacle is more amusing than the gradual decay and eventual transition that is usually found in history. Destruction is abrupt, it is deliberate, and boy oh boy, is it a compelling visual. Destruction functions as a statement of power. To destroy something is to be above it. Through its destruction, you have conquered the thing and what the thing represents. There is a morbid curiosity about cultures that partake in exocannibalism, the practice of cannibalizing on those outside your social group. Stories of warriors eating the bodies of their enemies have been found in cultures all over the world. This sort of utter destruction of soul and body was said to signal a transfer of power from the dead to the living who were consuming him. Not to mention, eating your enemies was incredibly metal, a little scary and would act as a deterrent against future attacks. Because come on, who wants to get eaten? Destruction represents dissent much better than creation. Creation supposes authority, a mastery to dictate the built world. Only parties adhering to the social contract can create in the mainstream. The rest are thrown to the fringes without acknowledgement. To gain legitimacy then, one must shift the status quo radically through revolution or gradually through legislature. As a motive, destruction is found very commonly in art, be it art depicting destruction or the destruction of art itself. The sand mantle of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition is an intricately constructed pattern made by pouring crushed pigment onto a plain platform. Upon the completion of the design, it is ritually destroyed. The several days of effort the monk put in creating the art are swept off the surface. It's a net-zero outcome. But the function of the sand mandel is just that it is made to be destroyed, a metaphor for the transience of life. As Pablo Picasso once said, the urge to destroy is a creative urge. And no more fitting caption could there be for the greatest stunt of the decade in the art market when Banksy initiated a remote control shredding of his own art that had just been auctioned for $1.4 million. The graffiti artist is a master at using art for political messaging, staging the destruction of a work already sold. Inside the auction house that had sold it, he called out the consumerist in the elite art market, the biggest upset the industry had faced until somebody ate a banana duct-taped to a wall. Destruction in art is used as a doublespeak, foreshadowing the awful realities of the world outside the canvas. Be it showing the aftermath of war, like John Singer Sargent's *Gassed*, depicting the soldiers blinded by mustard gas walking in straight lines to support each other, or Pablo Picasso's *Guernica*, depicting the pain and chaos caused by the tragedy of war. Political art is born through destruction. In Gustav Metzger's auto-destructive art, pioneered in the wake of the Second World War. He uses techniques of actual destruction, like pouring acid onto a sheet of cloth, to represent destructive practices like war, materialism, and consumerism. In that spirit, politically, art destruction represents a moral destruction of valued objects, those with real or perceived historic legacy. And no one embodies this quite like the Chinese activist and artist Ai Weiwei. In the highly controversial triptych, dropping a Han dynasty urn, Ai Weiwei does exactly that. Document in three pictures, his dropping of a 2000-year-old vase. That is not the only history he has destroyed. In his work titled Colored Vases, he paints over ancient Chinese vases in bright contrasting colors, a complete destruction of their antiquity. In another work titled Coca-Cola Ways, he goes complete war on a Han Dynasty Ways, painting it white and writing Coca-Cola on it in signature red. These unholy marriages of performance art, Dadaism and pop art with ancient Chinese pottery symbolizes a deviancy in era and object. These are not without intention. Ai Weiwei is calling out Mao's cultural revolution, which did more damage to Chinese history than I could ever. These are overt political references to a dark history, and if medium is the message, then destruction suits the theme perfectly. Part 3 Icons and Their Fall ( advocate) Destruction as a form of political symbolism has a long standing historic precedent. Iconoclasm is the purposeful destruction of religious or political icons, objects, monuments, and imagery. It is deliberately destructive as a literal and a symbolic elimination of religious and political beliefs. The study of iconoclasm began by looking at a specific destruction of a specific kind of icon, the Byzantine iconoclastic controversies of the 8th and 9th century. Byzantine Emperor Leo Third and later Leo V. Under guise of theological dissonance from one of the Ten Commandments that states, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, took a political stance against Christian icons. Throughout the empire, images and iconic depictions of the Christ were ordered to be destroyed. The state-sanctioned destruction of icons had a huge impact on Byzantine history. Its consequences ranged from artistic to religious. Its legacy is felt even today as the end of the second iconoclasm under Leo V is still celebrated as the Feast of Orthodoxy. In this context, iconoclasm is understood as a rejection of religious images, considering them as heretical. But modern scholarship adds a political dimension. Sure, they overlap numerous times. But of course, throughout history, people have been terrific at separating religious authority from political one. There are usually political undertones to seemingly religious conflicts. Even those that seem as theology-based as the Byzantine iconoclasm. some scholars propose the reason Leo III wanted to abolish icons from Christianity, who since the beginning had iconic representations, was to better integrate the Jewish and the Muslim populations into his empire. Other more politically focused theories from the period give us a sense that there's no truly apolitical religious conflict. So the separation between the two can be understood more by intention and framing rather than a holistic analysis. Religious iconoclasm is easier to identify than political iconoclasm, as religion, although abstract in its conception, has abundant iconic interpretations. Does not have to be idolatry. Religious icons manifest in sacred spaces. Sociologist Emil Durkheim's idea of the sacred and the profane helps us understand religion as a separate sacred realm different from the profane one. The objects in the sacred space are markably different from the mundane everyday aspects of life. It is not universally applicable, especially for cultures where there isn't a distinction between the mundane everyday and religious practice. But it works for the post-colonial understanding of religion, an idea we will be exploring in later episodes. Identifying religion helps us identify religious iconoclism better. Most religious traditions around the world have undergone iconoclism, be it from encounters with outside religions or during internal reform. By the time of the New Kingdom in ancient Egypt, a complex polytheistic religion was practiced with Amun at its center. The pharaoh at the time, Akhenaten, promoted the worship of a different god, the disk Aten, encouraging his subjects to adopt a monotheistic practice instead. Encouraging is putting it mildly. he essentially forced Aten onto his people by destroying old temples, monuments and all references to other gods. Aten's rule was so ubiquitous with his iconoclasm. he moved his capital to a new city, Amarna, he built dedicated to Aten. Upon his death, his unpopular religious policies were reverted back to Amun's worship by his son Tutankhamun and in the most gloriously ironic turn of event, his legacy was ordered to be destroyed by subsequent rulers. The temples of Aten were destroyed to restore and rebuild the temples of the old gods. That concludes my knowledge of the subject as the extent of my Egyptian history is limited only to highly produced operas with synchronized juggling. Personally, I find political iconoclasm to be a tad bit more interesting because A. Politics is everywhere even within religion, especially within religion And B. Despite being everywhere, iconic manifestations of politics are not always obvious This abstraction hasn't been converted into physicality with nearly as much success as religion There isn't a political secret, it is all profane Symbols of political authority are dependent on those interpreting it are more subjective harder to agree on and harder to destroy political authority is seen in all facets of public life and design so political iconoclasm takes advantage of the ever-pervasiveness of public spaces with overt and covert political symbols symbols of power political iconoclasm can be as simple as scratching out the name of an unpopular king from his decree to as extreme as demolishing an entire prison due to frustration over taxes. Roman Emperor Domitian, who ruled towards the end of the 1st century CE, wasn't a great guy. He referred to himself as Lord and God, did some economy stuff like revaluing the currency, rebuilt parts of Rome after it had burned down, went on a few expeditions, stripped power away from the Roman Democratic Senate, instituting himself as absolute monarch, you know, standard Roman emperor stuff. The Senate, on their part, did not like him or his growing authoritarianism, so they had him murdered. You know, standard Roman Senate stuff. They hated him so much, in fact, that after his death, they issued a damnatio memoriae, which is Latin for condemnation of memory, where public images of an individual are purged. They wiped his name off his decree, broke off his image on monuments. Like an unsavory ex, they pretended he never existed. But we know he existed, of course, his memory was not really damned. We have many inscriptions with his name etched out, thereby making them more important to future historians. The act of erasure was more significant than what was written under. Sometimes it is more fruitful to ask why something is missing instead of why something is present. We don't know how many people were damned to history, Akhenaten and Domitian, or just the fortunate few who survived. These individual iconoclisms occurring after a person's death are a nod to the power of history and the desire to be remembered, or at the very least, not forgotten. But as George Washington once said, you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. It is no coincidence that iconoclasm is most pervasive during times of political unrest. To take down a structure is to take down the ideology behind the structure, an ideology you don't agree with. Revolutions are a good place to examine political iconoclasm, as they are distinct periods of unrest, are inclined towards aggression if not outright violent, and are rife with de-individualization that is associated with mob participation. Most of the destruction during revolutions is not pre-planned. The object during another time might even be a beloved public monument. It is the implicit association with power that the icon evokes, that calls for its elimination. The execution, if one might call it that, is simple, but the legacy of destruction is far more sophisticated than mere vandalism. Nothing embodies this sophistication like the French Revolution of 1789. The simmering of enlightenment ideas, crop failures, growing taxes due to increasing debt, an increasingly hungry working class that bore all the burden of taxes, an unequal class system and frustration towards the elite classes that did not pay taxes together reached a boiling point, culminating in what we now know as the French Revolution, not to be confused with all the other revolutions France has had. Bastille was a fourteenth century fortress turned into a prison that loomed over the city of Paris. It was a site of monarchical power, narrating a king who did not himself live there. The storming of Bastille is a high profile beginning of the very many bloody years that followed. The purpose was twofold: release Louis XVI's prisoners, which at the time were only 7, and to gain ammunition for the guns and weapons that they had obtained from a different location. Ammunition had been moved to the fortress for safekeeping. They did not march down to Bastille to tear it down. Their earlier raid was successful without much violence. They even negotiated with the governor of the prison to meet their demands. The negotiations failed, of course, and the result was the governor's head on a pike and the fall of Bastille. It represented to the public a very tangible destruction of an archaic system of rule. If you could take down the symbol of the king's oppression, then you could take down the monarchy too. The French Revolution has a reputation of being overly bloody. The violence was not only directed towards people, but the symbols that were associated with monarchy, nobility and eventually clergy. If you had a head made of either marble or flesh, you best wish it stayed attached to your neck. The French Revolution represents a bottom-up kind of iconoclasm, where the need to destroy comes from the masses. The Byzantine iconoclasm, on the other hand, was a top-down kind of destruction. The emperor mandated it, and so it shall be done. They represent a licensed and an unlicensed form of iconoclasm each. It helps us identify which icons were destroyed, and who was destroying them. But this battle of licensed versus unlicensed is framed in the form of state versus citizen. However, a large quantity of destruction was a result of conquest and war, the invader destroying the icons of the invaded. The most visually relevant being American forces tearing down the statue of Saddam Hussein in Fidov Square. The footage of the felling of the statue and the crowd of civilians cheering the American soldiers was broadcasted throughout the world as a hurrah for America's controversial invasion of Iraq. It replayed several times over in the media, particularly in the United States of America, emphasizing the triumph of freedom and democracy. No wonder then, contemporary perspective towards the event called it American propaganda. Another very interesting case of the licensed versus unlicensed dichotomy was China's cultural revolution. It was neither and both at the same time. Mao Zedong, chairman of the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China was responsible for some very bad economic policies in the 1950s. Policies like the first five-year plan which was a mixed success and a second, more radical five-year plan called the Great Leap Forward which was an outright disaster. His policies led to the death of anywhere between 5 to 40 million people. There was a growing anti-Mao sentiment within the Communist Party of China with calls to strip him of his power and control over the state and party. His political power within the country he founded was dwindling. As a response, Mao called upon the Chinese revolutionary spirit to participate in the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution in 1966. It was an attempt to safeguard Mao's place at the top of the Chinese government, but he framed it as a decisive blow against the counter-revolutionaries growing in number. Traitors, spies, capitalists and intellectuals. The qualification for being a counter-revolutionary was so broad, anybody against Mao was subject to scrutiny, followed by public humiliation and execution. The Cultural Revolution was anti-Western and anti-intellectual. Western fashion had come under scrutiny. If you had the wrong number of pockets on your shirt, or if the leg of your pant was too wide, a group of teenagers called the Red Guard would come and humiliate you. Not in a mean girls kind of way through backhanded compliments and veiled insults. No, your clothes could be cut, you would be made to wear a white cone on your head and squat for extended periods of time, all in public. The Western style became an icon of capitalism, and if the body that wore it was alright with those associations, then the body was against Mao's doctrine. The abstract iconic references of politics manifest in the form of garment. Glasses were seen as a symbol of intellectualism, not of poor eyesight, and the wearer was thus a counter-revolutionary. Icons can be anything we attach representational moral value to. That is why iconoclasm is not just tearing down statues and erasing images, but also burning books of controversial authors or breaking albums of bands who claim to be more popular than Jesus. Icons can be anything. The most devastating destruction of icons during the Cultural Revolution was a result of an anti-traditional doctrine proposed by Mao wherein he called for the annihilation of the Four Olds. Old customs, old culture, old habits and old ideas. The Communist Party of China had adopted the Marxist perspective towards religion wherein they believed it was oppressive and escapist and thus had no place in a communist China. The party had a history of communist-inspired iconoclasms even before the formation of the People's Republic of China, but this was mainly economic in the form of redistribution of temple land and asset or utilitarian through repurposing temples as bases during the civil war with Kuomintang. But it was the Cultural Revolution that broke the camel's back. The beginning of the revolution set the tone for what was to come. They robbed the tomb of Confucius and spread his ashes into the wind. Confucius is the perceived champion of traditional Chinese values, but during the Cultural Revolution, there was an intense anti-Confucius campaign that sought to desecrate his legacy. The official party line on historical objects was to preserve them as indicators of cultural heritage, not a religious one. They were secularized and their history was sanitized. That is how many Buddhist temples managed to escape destruction, changing their public functionality from sacred to cultural. But the public quickly caught on to the fact that it was contrary to Mao's preaching and went ahead with demolishing many Buddhist temples and icons. The present weighs is heavy on the perceptions of history. Chinese history is permanently scarred by the destruction of the cultural revolution All we have are negative impressions on the bottom paper when the top page gets ripped off. The absences in ancient history tell the tale of a modern power struggle. Objects with perceived historical value only ever reflect present sensibilities and fixations. So if one wants to learn about the present, all they need to do is read the history we treasure. Part 4 take down his statue, and let his cause fall. There was another icon that fell during the Cultural Revolution, but fortunately, when it ended with Mao's death, the icon was resurrected. Renowned Chinese poet Ai Xing was exiled eight years before the Cultural Revolution began, but the ideological basis of it was the same, an anti-intellectual campaign. After the end of the Cultural Revolution, he was reinstated, even going on to receive international awards. He was the father of Ai Weiwei, the pot-breaking, was painting, artist and activist whose actions have irked both historians and artists alike. The legacy of the Cultural Revolution lives on within him and is reflected prominently within his art. Whether or not you find his actions justifiable, it is the history that he has lived through and inherited. His family has suffered due to Mao's policies. His father was even blinded in one night during his exile. The dropping of the Han dynasty urn was less about the Han dynasty urn and more about the relationship of power and history, of historic perceptions of older histories. That is not to say that all iconoclasm is justified or even effective. The major critique for the destruction of icons, besides the fact that heritage is lost, is simply that it is a superficial solution to a systemic problem. If icons are the public façade of injustice, then iconoclasm is only the public façade of retribution. Icons are a representation of ideas at the end of the day, not the ideas themselves. Actionable measures should follow or the destruction is rendered useless. There are times when the revolution seems to be over. The injustices seem to be a thing of the past. From fearful trip, the victorship has come in with object one. But the lived experiences of those who own that history are still rife with wrongs. There is perhaps another phase of iconoclasm happening right now. After the murder of George Floyd by a police officer, America and many places around the world have erupted into protests over police brutality and racial injustices. During these marches, many confederate statues venerating icons of a lost war over the right to own slaves have been torn down with much force and fanfare. Not only confederate monuments, statues of Columbus, Churchill and more historical figures with unsavoury racial opinions have been vandalised. The protests have woken a deep, slumbering, rather uncomfortable question. Whose history should we highlight? Whose statues should we build? Robert W. Lee, the fourth pastor and descendant of his namesake, Confederate General Robert E. Lee, speaks about the dog whistle effect the statue of his ancestor has on extremist belief. In an op-ed in the Washington Post, he writes, Take down his statue and let his cause fall. Statues are aesthetic representations of the values of a society. When there is a dissonance within the two, one needs to ask, are the values of the society wrong or are the statues wrong it is time anyway to revisit history gestalt history is written produced and narrated by me gayatri for updates and reaching out follow at History on twitter subscribe to the podcast now available on any major podcast hosting website and app to never miss an episode